The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Medtronic. Medtronic is dedicated to the pursuit of life-transforming health tech. From AI to robotics and beyond, we're reinventing what's possible, and we're just getting started. Visit Medtronic.com to learn more. Hey, folks. A quick note before we get started. We recently launched our first original audiobook. It's shorter by design. It's just over an hour. It's called Immortality, A User's Guide, and it's written and read by the great science writer Stephen Johnson. He goes deep on the astonishing science of radical life extension. Is it possible for you to live to 120 or even 150? To find out, listen to Immortality, A User's Guide by going to nextbigideaclub.supportingcast.fm or download the Next Big Idea app. LinkedIn presents. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, indispensable life advice from the great Kevin Kelly. Seven years ago, I started to get this feeling, a feeling I couldn't shake, that I was a pregnant sea turtle. Metaphorically, of course. I had what felt like a clutch of eggs inside me. It was all the hard-won wisdom I'd stockpiled over the years that my kids were too young to hear. And I needed to put it somewhere for safekeeping. If I were hit by a streetcar, I figured, it would be nice to be able to counsel my mischievous boys from the grave. So I went on Medium and published an article called Unsolicited Advice for My Three Sons. All these years later, my three sons, now 12, 15, and 18, can you believe it, have yet to read it. But much to my surprise, it went viral. It was republished in the New York Observer, the Daily Mail, picked up by the Today Show and read a few million times. I stand by most of what I wrote. I still begin conversations with people on airplanes when I hear, we have begun our descent. I still give money to street musicians, even bad ones. I still ask for a small coffee in a medium cup at Starbucks. You end up with just enough room for milk and you save 27 cents. I still believe that you should expect nothing from your friends and everything from your friendships. But the momentary internet stardom I experienced was nothing like what happened to Kevin Kelly when he embarked on a similar project four years later, writing down kernels of advice for his children and publishing them in a blog post titled 68 Bits of Unsolicited Advice. Kevin's advice was so popular that people kept asking for more of it. So he published another list and then another. And when he'd accumulated 450 nuggets of wisdom, he bound them together in a wonderful book out now called Excellent Advice for Living. You may be wondering, why are people so hungry for Kevin Kelly's guidance? Well, for starters, it's really good advice. Let me give you a few examples. Don't create things to make money. Make money so you can create things. To quiet a crowd or a drunk, just whisper. When you find something you really enjoy, do it slowly. Forgiveness is accepting the apology you will never get. Pretty good, right? But I think there's another reason why Kevin's advice has caught on. It has to do with who Kevin is. In the olden days, they would have called him a soothsayer. 
For the last 40 years, he has been uncommonly prescient about where culture, society, and technology are headed. So when he offers you advice for living, working, making things, it's worth paying attention. This is a guy who edited the Whole Earth Review and helped launch an influential early online community, The Well, in 1985. He wrote a best-selling book called The Inevitable, Understanding the 12 Technological Forces That Will Shape Our Future. Today, he's senior maverick at Wired, the magazine he co-founded in 1993. The way I would describe Wired, it was not really a magazine about technology. It was a magazine about the culture of technology. Mm -hmm. The genius of Wired, and this was due to Louis Rossetto and Jane, was to wrap these ideas around uh, humans Mm -hmm. and try to make heroes out of the nerds. And in that way, we were very successful. Back then, one might argue it was easier to be a tech optimist. My, my guess is you would continue to describe yourself as a, as a tech optimist. It's slightly less in vogue to be a tech optimist today. How do you think about how that conversation has evolved, about whether technology is something to be afraid of or excited about, or, or perhaps both? You're absolutely right in a couple of respects. One, that there has been a shift in the general tenor of culture. So when I was growing up in the 50s and 60s, the, a new technology was, the response was, wow, that's that's really great. And they would have visions of the how this is going to be fabulous. Today, I would say the very first response of anything, any new technology is, how is this going to bite me back? How is this going to yeah, hurt yeah. us? What's the hidden agenda? That is the general tenor of the initial reactions to almost anything new that we make today. The issue now, as an optimist, and I am more optimistic now than I've ever been in my life about the future, is to not let the real problems overwhelm the unintended benefits that we're going to get from technology. Well, it's interesting, your, your comment about unintended positive consequences. Right. We, we tend to think about unintended negative consequences, right. right? What's the, where are they? Where are they hiding? We know they're unintended negative consequences. And I think particularly in the last decade, right? Because I think, I think maybe there's a collective sense we were bitten by social media right. in a way that we didn't see coming. But there are also unintended positive consequences. And now you're speaking to the importance of intended positive consequences, right. right, that we need to really rigorously think through as a community, as a nation, as a world, what positive consequences we want to build into these new technologies because they are so, so powerful. Yes, exactly. And um, my optimism is not resting upon the the idea that I think we have fewer and smaller problems than we think. My optimism is based on the fact that our ability to solve problems is much greater than we think. It strikes me that one of the hardest things to predict are time horizons. I mean, I, I was aware in the 80s of virtual reality as something that that was going to be mm-hmm. a big deal. You know, I, I would never have guessed that it would have taken another 20 to 30 years yes. for VR and augmented reality to really right. become something that was, I mean, we're still waiting for- You're still yeah. waiting, yeah, yeah. I'm, I, I, was, <laughs> I, I was also totally wrong. Right. About that, in a sense, because I also, like you, saw it. Oh, this is going to change the world. Yeah, this is going to. This is right around the corner. So we're still kind of waiting on that to happen, which 
I mean, it's not that unusual in the field of technology. If you think about like cell phones were kind of percolating around for years and years, they were very easy to dismiss. There were the moment where, you know, the kind of inflection point when the technology kind of caught up to the vision. Yes. And now suddenly it was possible to have one on your watch. I think we're waiting for the same kind of thing in the VR, MR, XR world, which is we can see it, but the technology hasn't caught up to be able to provide it to us yet. We had a conversation with David Chalmers about his book, Reality Plus, you may sure. have read. Uh, and and he, he, as you know, takes this contrarian position that we will spend a significant portion of our of our future lives in VR, and it will arguably be better. <laughs> you know, and it's that second part that is, I think, most astonishing because uh, it is it has become really contrarian in a way that it wasn't 20, 30 years ago to be optimistic. But I like I like your informed, cautious optimism. All one needs to believe is that our ability to solve problems will be a little bit ahead of the our, our right. ability to create problems. And if we have a one percent improvement year over year, uh, the compounding impact of that makes the world you know, pretty pretty substantially better over time. Yeah, yeah. So there's, we don't need much of a delta to to, to get, you know, as long as we don't much of a delta and if we're compounding it, you know, that is, the, you know, one of the most potent forces in the world and that's at work, even in technology. Yeah, I, I, I am optimistic about VR and AR for that reason, you know, acknowledging again that it will present a bunch of new problems and the difference between me and most tech critics is that I think the solution to the problems that technology makes is not less technology, but more and better technology. Now, AI is obviously a topic that's on everybody's minds right now. You don't and, say. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes. And when we talk about, about timetables and the challenge in predicting them, I think what we've seen in the last six months is this unexpected acceleration, yeah. right? That everybody's just been blown away by yeah, the, yeah. the capacities of GPT-4. And this really, I think many people listening might say, should should put your tech optimism to the test, right? Yeah. <laughs> right, 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 so, right. So when, when friends of mine were pregnant, I used to ask, how is your fear to excitement ratio Mm. <laughs> going into this pregnancy. We're now pregnant with AI. Mm. How is your fear to excitement ratio? Oh, uh, you know, I would say nine excitement, one fear. And so you're not afraid of an existential threat from superintelligence. No, I'm not. First of all, that's not new in itself. People have been talking about that you yes. know, for, for a long time. Yeah, Nick Bostrom and Elon Musk and others, yeah. There's no disagreement about the abilities of these systems to get smarter and smarter or to become conscious or to be sentient. I think those are all within the realm of possibility. Here's what I say. If you took a human and a lion and put them in a cage, it's not true that the smartest one's going to survive. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. so, so these guys basically- That's an interesting o- argument, they yeah. They overestimate the value of intelligence. And- in the real world, intelligence is not necessarily the only thing or the, even the most important thing in trying to get things done. And so the idea of taking over and killing everybody requires a lot of capacity and competency in the real world to getting things done. It is actually yeah. very, very difficult to kill a lot of humans, particularly if you want to kill all of them at once so they don't even know that's coming. And so that reality 
is, 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 is very complicated. And there are a lot of people who are very smart, who like to think that thinking is the most important thing and all you need. I call that thinkism. And mm -hmm. so thinkism is, is this idea that, that high intelligence trumps everything else. And I just think that that's not a realistic picture of reality, which is that in our own experience, it's not that the smartest person is the most successful or the smartest company or the company with the smartest people in it are the ones that, that survive or thrive or dominate. There are so many other virtues and benefits and talents and abilities that you need that can often overcome smartness and intelligence. And so I'm just, I think we have to be wary of people who are really very smart and like to think when they tell us that thinking is really the only thing that counts. I think part of what has been so kind of alarming is, is that enough people have interacted with GPT-4 or ChatGPT and, and witnessed it. There's asymmetrical intelligence here, right? It could, it, it's stupid in certain areas and, yeah. and extremely, extremely smart in others. But when you get a sampling of some of the areas in which it is dramatically smarter than we are, you, 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 you get a taste of... Uh, perhaps what other species have felt in the past when uh, they were outsmarted. <laughs> we're yeah, yeah, no yeah. longer we're no longer the smartest we're no longer the smartest species. And I think I, I think it also begins to introduce some interesting questions and maybe some healthy questions about what it is that's special about humans. We've lived through this several times already. We think it's new, but do you remember when calculators came along? Yes, Calculators right, right. are at least a million times smarter than us in arithmetic. That's right. And and I, I'm certain that there were math uh, teachers who were outraged. Absolutely. This <laughs> right. end, it's the end of uh, arithmetic for yeah. humans because yeah. they're never going to learn. It's going to set us back a million years. So we confronted that. And when Google came along, it was superhuman in its ability to memorize 8 billion web pages and remember everything on there. And we 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 we, we yes. soon absorbed and right. became home at that. And so these things already. You mentioned this kind of uh, what I call dumb smartin. They're dumb smartin. This is going to be yes, our, yes. I love that our, yeah. our phrase. They're how can you be so smart here and so dumb over yeah. there? Yeah. And as we see that these machines do certain things better than we've done, it changes what we're proud of, right? Yeah. Like, like right. In, in, in your example, like it, it might have been true. You know, uh, 60, 80 years ago that, you know, the kid who, who who could do large multiplication in his head and spout it off at cocktail yeah. parties was a hero. Right. And now it's like, why would you do that? We've got, right, a, right. you know, I could do that on my phone. Uh, or, 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 you know, just having an encyclopedic knowledge of history and spouting out right, lots right. of lots of data. Well, that that sort of doesn't seem wildly impressive in, an, in the age of Google. Maybe reducing a little bit our hubris around our intelligence may not be such a bad thing when we think about what we want to emphasize about what it is to be a human. Yes. Well, this might be a good time to segue into a small sampling of your 450 nuggets of wisdom. The greatest rewards come from working on something that nobody has words for. If you possibly can, work where there are no names for what you do. Or where it takes at least 15 minutes to explain to your mother what it is. Do you think this is good advice for young people? And by the way, I'll say I have three boys who are 12, 15, 18, and they're more likely to take advice from you than they are from me. <laughs> <laughs> I would say um, absolutely it's, it's advice for young people. And also, parenthetically, it's also an advice if you're doing a startup. 
It's the mm-hmm. same thing. Yeah. Because yeah. It's, it's much more likely that that area where we, which is ahead of language, that's usually where all the frontiers are, um, the, the slang and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff follows. And by the way, that's one of the tips I use for finding out what's really happening is where are the words being invented quickest? Yeah. Look yeah. for where language is being um, mm-hmm. born. Interesting. It's more likely that that's where a breakthrough will happen. It always breakthroughs happen on the edges. So going where there's no name for what it is, is one way you can get to the edge where a breakthrough is likely. And the second really good reason is, is because um, you'll not have much competition there. You kind of want to invent new ways to be successful. Right, okay? right. So there's much more, that's much more likely to happen where, where, where you can kind of have it yourself. And the third reason um, relates to my general favorite piece of advice in my book, which is don't aim to be the best. Yes. Aim to be the only. So you want to be on a path. You want to aim towards always trying to see where you are doing something that is fit for you, that's authentic to you, where other people aren't doing it, where only you can do it. That's a very high bar. It takes most of your life, including my life, to get close to that. It's like an asymptotic approach. You never really mm-hmm. reach it. But you can go in that direction. And then kind of being somewhere where there's no name, you're more likely to be headed in that right direction. Well, a, a great example, I think, is podcasting, right? Because today, oh, yes. it, it's very hard. I mean, it was, I don't know how, how many years ago that explaining to your mother, as you say, right, right. that, Mom, I'm going to just talk to people and record it and, <laughs> you know, and put it out there, yeah. uh, that that was, that was going to be a job and, and in fact, a, like a, a potentially very successful job. But today, it's, it, it's much harder than it was, uh, you know, uh, 10 years ago, certainly, to, to, to break into podcasting right. uh, because there's so much noise. But but there is a sweet spot where there's the beginnings of a of a platform that can support you and a recognition and the beginning of excitement right that creates a promotional engine so so, so to me i would say it seems to me there's also a danger to being too early yes well that's timing yeah you you can absolutely be be too early in terms of of um, trying to make a living doing it um, yeah. and, and again, I would say, again, the caveat, of course, is that this territory of having no name is littered with skulls, right? <laughs> like, like, yeah. It's the, the, the most likely thing is that whatever you're going to be trying to do is going to fail, right? I mean, that's yeah. in any given experiment in science, it's not going to work. The first drafts of a book are to be thrown away. So, so that's the natural state. It's not like there's any guarantee of success at all. It's a very treacherous territory. But that's one of the things that's changed in our culture. And I think Silicon Valley had a large part of it, which is this whole shift from historical to now, um, where we understand that failure is not a moral failure. Failure is necessary for innovation and success and progress. That, that, that is an essential ingredient that's part of the rhythm. Yes. It's, it's that, that, yes. That, that you will fail forward, that you're going yes. to do things and iterate them because most of the initial things are going to fail. Yes. So you'll be out there working where there's no name. Yeah. And it's, it's, yeah. not, it's not saying that that's going to work. Yeah. It's just saying that's the place you want to iterate from. That's the place you want to try the next thing. So, so you have to be prepared for the fact that um, to get to something really good, you got to produce a lot of things that are 
not so good. Yes, and yes. If you can accept that and be patient, and that's another thing. A lot of success is indistinguishable mm -hmm. from patience, from just sticking it out. And my bits of advice about making great things is they have to be redo, redo, redo again and again. You make one to throw away. You make the first one to draft, knowing you're going to throw away the draft. That took me a long time. Yeah, <laughs> a yeah, long time yeah. for me to kind of like see that wisdom. The idea that, okay, now you're done, throw it away and start again. Ah! But that's <laughs> yeah, yeah, really yeah, right, right, the right, only right. way you're going to get it to be great. When you're talking about, about failure and the importance of failure as part of the process, it feels to me that's not something kids necessarily come out of school feeling. Right. Right. Because it's, right. You're, you're, getting, you're getting grades and the grade reflects basically your, your failures, right. your mistakes in proportion to your correct answers. And, that, and it, it really is a system of punishing failure, which is not what we want. Right. So I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start just going straight into your, reading your, your nuggets of wisdom. Okay. Being enthusiastic is worth 25 IQ points. Okay. This is great news for a lot of people listening. I'm sure people are, are happy to hear this. Why do you think this is true? There's obviously some humor in this one, but but you, you believe it to be roughly, not exactly. Yeah. It could, could might be 24. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. I mean, th there's several things. One, it goes back to what I was saying earlier, that it's not just intelligence that leads to success alone. There are other qualities, including enthusiasm. And secondly, you know, this stems out of my own hiring and, and the kind of people that I hire. Yes. That enthusiasm, which is positivity, there's a level of commitment and enthusiasm. There's a mm -hmm, level mm -hmm. of, of imagination. You're kind of like, you're believing that things are possible and mm -hmm. trying to act towards that. And those are all qualities that are needed to make something happen in addition to some element of, of intelligence. But here's the thing, it's a lot easier it's a lot easier to grow your enthusiasm than your intelligence. Maybe one piece of the mechanics of enthusiasm helping to create more success is not just, oh, we, people like to be around positive people, but it's, it's also, there's a bias for action. Yeah. That it's like, we need to do, we need to move quickly and try a lot of things, right. which is another thing you talk about, right? right? And, and, and enthusiasm is to some degree like the catalyst, the engine for a lot of repetitive testing and trying and prototyping, right? Which is something you talk about. Yeah, exactly. I think you're, that's exactly right. Okay, here, here's another one. It's thrilling to be extremely polite to rude strangers. <laughs> I, I've had this experience actually, and I, I can I can confirm that I did find yeah. it to be thrilling. <laughs> it, it, it is. I, I've done it too. It's discombobulating, and it does de-escalate things immediately. It's often very confusing uh, <laughs> to, to to the other side. And and you know, in general, uh, one of the themes in my book is you know we can't be too kind, and there's this this really weird core principle of the universe that makes no logical sense and that which is is that the more you give the more even more is returned to you even more you get it's like mathematically this doesn't make any sense at all but that yeah. seems to be how the world and the world of humans is arranged where that kind of generosity kindness it's not kindness is not a sign of weakness it's a sign of strength yes 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 you're working from this strength of being generous, of being abundant. And, you know, you're generating ideas and giving them away. And in order to do that, you have to have the practice of generating something every day, of, of being, you know, like an artist, of making art every day, 
writing every day, helping people every day, whatever it is, you, you do this on a kind of a, a, a practice. And what that gives you is it gives you the confidence to give away because you know that there's more where it's coming from. It's sort of like the, 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 the more you do it, the, the deeper the well gets. Okay, and so you you begin to, to have to to be able to be generous, and it's not a matter of being privileged, although it certainly helps. I see this work even in the poorest areas of the world. Is that that act of being generous with whatever it is that you have deepens your well, so that you can produce yet more to give away. It's one of the wonderful discoveries I think that maybe for a lot of people arrives in midlife is is realizing that actually kindness, generosity rewards the giver more yep. than the receiver almost and it's it's uh not everything that's true about the world is useful and ha and, and, <laughs> and good <laughs> but this one happens to me okay here's another one everyone is shy yeah other people are waiting for you to introduce yourself to them they're waiting for you to send them an email they're waiting for you to ask them on a date Go ahead. Now, I'm thinking of my kids here. This is something that when you're 18, 19, 20 years old, you, you kind of think, I'm just shyer than everybody else, and it takes more work for me to put myself out there. But no, everyone is having that same experience. Yeah, exactly. And I don't know, I mean, that is like that is something you wish you'd that I wish I'd learned earlier too. Yeah, this idea right. of the cold call of just you know asking for what you want and just yeah. politely, always politely and and, and respectfully. Um, and and then secondly, if you are refused, there's another bit of wisdom which is sometimes follow up the second one because everybody's busy. And then thirdly, if you are refused, accept it gracefully. Just it's not a personal insult. Yeah. It's that's right. It's just not the right time. And there's been plenty of times when I was refused initially, but later on, maybe years later, it was the right time. And that's yeah, yeah. Um, that's another thing is, is that there are seasons and appropriate times. So, so yeah, th that's a big lesson that I really also wish I'd yeah. known a lot earlier. Yeah. Well, and, and a corollary to the, this might be, I found that particularly older people are kind of aching to give advice to younger people, again, because of the inconvenience that we can't give advice to our younger selves. And often our children don't necessarily want to hear our advice yeah. <laughs> from experience. And so I think mentors and people in positions of power are often much more accessible than we think. And as you say, if you want advice, ask for money. If you want money, ask for advice. It's much better to go in to somebody in a position of, of power or seniority or somebody you admire and ask them for advice. Right, exactly. Okay, I love this one. Your best response to an insult is, you're probably right. <laughs> Often they are. Mm -hmm. There's usually some truth in an insult. Yeah. I mean, not always, but, 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 there, but there usually is. And that goes back to kind of an initial one of trying to learn from those that you don't like. And we, uh, I think we have no obligation to like everybody, but we certainly have obligation to respect everybody. And I have learned to try and learn from people that don't like or disagree with because they're human. People are complicated, including myself. And there are things that they probably are right about. That is a superpower, being able to learn from. And again, it's not requiring that you like them, only that you understand that there's something they can teach you. 
And that's one of my little yes. games in, in life, uh, another bit of advice, is that I think everybody alive, everybody that, that you're likely to meet, probably knows more about something than most people. But it's not going to be obvious what it is. And if you can find it and let them share it with you, they'll light up. It'll be one of the best hours of your life. And so I also make it into a game where I'm meeting somebody or sitting next to somebody for some reason. Yes, it's like, yeah. I know, I know that you're passionate about something to a degree yes. that's really remarkable. And it's actually not that easy to get there for a number of reasons. You usually have to kind of go down three levels, three questions at least. But if you can touch that, they will they'll be they'll just be delighted. They'll just they'll just light up and shine and share yeah. with you their right. love and passion about it. And if you're listening, you can learn a lot. Yes, yes. No, I've always thought, yeah, when you're seated at the dinner party and you're and you're pushing a fork into your palm because you think you can't find any you can't find any commonality. Yeah, that it's it that that's my failure. It's my failure. I haven't discovered the thing that I yeah. that I can learn from this person and, and what's what's so fascinating about their about their journey. Coming up, we dig into some of Kevin's debatable advice. Like, is it really so bad to wear a hat that has more character than you do? Stick around. We'll be right back. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. I have a category, Kevin, of things that are debatable. Oh, uh, okay. uh, uh, from your list. Yeah, yeah, great, yeah. yeah. Great, great, great. Okay, we've got uh, um, avoid wearing a hat that has more character <laughs> than, than you do. Uh, I don't know. I think sometimes you want to wear a hat that has more character than you do. So I, I'm going to push back on that. I, no, dance with your hips. I agree with that. Yeah. I, I, I do okay. think that that's dance with your hips. I mean, that's, I mean, anybody who's are, a dance teacher will tell you this, by the way. Right, right, right. I mean, I've noticed that women are typically better at dancing with their hips than men. Men yeah. tend to dance with their like elbows, right. <laughs> you know, which probably, that's probably what I do. So I've got to, we'll take that. Um, but okay, here's one that I think is very interesting. The quickest checkout line will be the one with the fewest people, no matter the size of their carts. Yeah. Now, in my local grocery store, there's some very large carts. <laughs> well, <laughs> so I don't know. Right. Right. I, yeah. I, I, I was timing, I, I was counting. And that's my conclusion and, other, and some other people. So, so if you have counter evidence, I'd like to hear it. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll circle back. Th this one I love, to be interesting, just tell your story with uncommon honesty. Oh yeah, you know, in terms of writing, oh my gosh, this is, and, and here's what I mean by uncommon honesty. I don't just mean that you want to tell like your dirty secrets. The best writing, the writings that we respond mm. to, the stories that we yeah. respond to are very kind of like unpredictable. They're they're always kind of surprising us. And and the great writers are 
definitely surprising us because almost every yes. sentence is right. a sentence that has never been uttered before. And that's the kind of honesty, that's the level of honesty that I'm talking about, where you are, one, being vulnerable, but also in words and phrasing that are also honest in the sense that they're yours. I remember in, in I think it was 10th grade, I had an English teacher who said, great writing is not using big words, it's using ordinary words in unusual combinations. Yes. And I think in those moments of uncommon honesty, it's when the writer or speaker is peeling back layers, depths of honesty that surprise them. Right. The novelist, Michael Chabon, who I love, uh, once said that uh, I, something like, um, the stuff that's going to connect that people want to keep reading is the stuff that makes you feel uncomfortable as you're writing it always. <laughs> oh, I you know, know right? That's, that's really that's, great. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that good? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Now, thinking of, wow. I, I'm, I'm thinking of my 18-year-old son who's just graduating from high school in a few weeks when, when I read this piece of advice. This is the best time ever to make something. None of the greatest, coolest creations 20 years from now have been invented yet. You are not too late. Yeah. That's 100% true. It's not too late. And also, the reason why it's also the best time is that we've never had as great a set of tools to make things than now when uh, an individual can just mm -hmm. grab yeah, all yeah. the tools. Money's never been easier to find. It's the best time ever in terms of equipping an individual or a small group of people to make something. Yeah. And would you say to kids who are, who are in college or getting out of college or dropping out of college as you did, uh, would you say work for someone else first or would you say start your own thing out of the gate? I think both can work. It depends on the kid, your background, your experience. I mean, if you can get a job at a big company with lots of employees, there's, there's a, so much you can learn there. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I think where it becomes maybe more problematic is like if you've been there for five years and you're still there, is that a good place for you? Yeah. yeah. When, if you're only 25, mm, you know, that's probably not. Um, starting out when you're by yourself when you're 22, it depends on what you're trying to accomplish and what you're trying to do. I think if you're trying to master something, I think you want to work with people who can teach you. I mean, I think that's the main thing you're doing is you're still a newbie. You you really want to maximize your learning. Yes. And if you yeah. are a really great self-directed person that can learn by watching YouTube, sure, uh, do a startup. For most people, I think you need a little bit more people around you. And yeah. I think yeah. maybe something in between, like a small right. company or a small group of several dozens where you have more of an opportunity to learn. So your job really when you're beginning is to master something and to keep learning. You know, our own kids, we had similar kind of conversations and they've gone back and forth with startups and joining companies and stuff. And our refrain is go where you're going to learn the most right now. Yes. Yes, Just exactly. However you're going to learn the most, yeah. whether it's startup yeah. or a big company. Yeah. Just optimize that. Yeah. Well, there, there's nothing wrong with getting paid to learn a lot and also to meet people who may become your future co-founders. Yes. You know, I, I mean, I think I think meeting the right people to team up with is so key. Okay, here's one I love. 
make stuff that is good for people to have. <laughs> yep. Right. I mean, it, it seems self-evident, but it's not. It's not. Right? No, uh, no, no. People think, well, I'm going to make stuff that makes the most money. No, you don't really want to do that. You really don't for your own soul's sake. But yeah, make stuff that, that's good. Not just that people want, but that's good for them to want. Yes, yes. And and I think that's become even more true in the last couple of decades. We live in a world where people want to work for companies that are putting good into the world. People want to support companies and patronize businesses that are doing good things. And I think employees and customers maybe have more power than they did, mm-hmm. um, you know, 50 years ago, 20 years ago even. And, and I think that's a positive development. Yeah, I agree. Uh, this one I love. So when we get into the building uh, of businesses, which is close to my heart as a serial entrepreneur, on the way to a grand goal, celebrate the mm. smallest victories as if each one were the final goal. That way, no matter where it ends, you are victorious. Yeah. You know, um, that was sparked by a friend who does screenplays for Hollywood. And there's all, you know, there's there's this kind of like a, a labyrinth, a maze of different hurdles you have to get through. And so many things are kind of like optioned and then very few of them, you know, are casted and a few percent of those go on to get funded. And even after it's funded and casted and everything, there's still uh, a nutrition rate. So, so it's like, it's a complete almost miracle that anything ever actually makes it to the screen. And so along the way, um, he would celebrate um Something getting optioned. It's like, oh, okay, this is it. If, if it goes no further, I am happy. And that's the right attitude, I think, is, is that you assume that it's not going to go any further than that. And so you celebrate it as if, okay, this is really fantastic. And I think that kind of bled into this idea of celebrating all the little things along the way mm, as if yeah. they were major achievements, because in some senses they are, and it may never go any further than that. I remember Jack Welch, the GE CEO, uh, at one point had a line in his autobiography about about how the difference between how sports teams celebrate victories versus businesses, right? And they're, you know, even, you know, they're, they're high-fiving every single play, physically, chest bumping, you know, and then if they win a game, they're taking throwing a whole thing of Gatorade <laughs> over somebody's head. I mean, the physicality of that. And and teams of people building beautiful products and business yeah. have victories like that all day long, and they rarely right. connect right. in that with that kind of physical celebration. And I think we I think culturally like that's that that's something to aspire to. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Exactly. Here's a bonus tip. Reading is a form of meditation that makes you smarter. It's a radical act of patience in this frenetic, tech-addicted world we all live in. And the data shows reading is a kind of miracle drug. It reduces stress, increases motivation, improves sleep. It's correlated with more success, higher income. And books don't run out of batteries. But what to read? We at the Next Big Idea Club can help you with that. You've heard about our app, which provides daily book summaries from the authors themselves, but have you heard about our box subscription? Go to nextbigideaclub.com to learn all about it. Here's the short version. Sign up for a Next Big Idea Club hardcover box subscription, and you will get four boxes per year, each containing two books, that's eight books per year, 
And not just any books, the best books of the season, according to our four legendary curators, Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, Daniel Pink, and Adam Grant. Plus, we discuss the books with the authors and distill them into exclusive audio e-courses. Go to nextbigideaclub.com and become a member of our growing community. Welcome back to the show. Here's a piece of Kevin Kelly wisdom that I've been applying to my life in the last few weeks. When you are stuck, explain your problem to others. Often simply laying out a problem will present a solution. Make explaining the problem part of your troubleshooting process. I wish I knew that earlier because it's so effective again and again. I'm calling for someone for help and I'm explaining the problem to them. And then the three quarters of the way through, I get the answer to myself. It's like, I just got to do that as a regular thing whenever I'm stuck is to start to explain the problem. And it's amazing how well that works. Okay. You say you really don't want to be famous. Mm. Read the biography of any famous person <laughs> That's a, and that will prove it to you. Uh, you also say separately, you probably don't want to be a billionaire. Um, yeah. I, I think this is liberating for people, right? To realize that actually fame and billionaire status are not necessarily a place you want to land. Yeah. And, and, and that has come from my hanging around with multi-billionaires and famous people and um, seeing how their lives are completely disrupted by both of those, um, just their, their, their burdens. There actually are, if you're famous, you know, to the degree of, of very famous people, it is totally a prison. And if you're wealthy to the degree of multi, multi-billions, it's also just an incredible burden on everybody and your kids especially. Well, I'm happy that uh, I don't have neither problem right, right, exactly. at this point. <laughs> so that's my advice to everybody listening. Yeah, yeah. Try as hard as you can. Whatever you do, yeah. don't make a billion dollars. Right, right, right. But making enough money to control your time. Right. Right, and to be able to apply yourself to the things that matter, to the things that light you up, right? This, this seems also to be part of your uh, philosophy. Absolutely. So, so one of the things I do with my kids and their friends all the time is a little thought experiment. Okay, I'm going to wave my magic wand and I'm going to give you a billion dollars. What are you going to do with your billion? And they have a whole bunch of things they're going to do, you know, travel around the world or whatever it's like. And so I said, okay, okay here's, here's the thing. You don't need a billion dollars to travel around the world. You can do it on $1,000, right? You don't have to wait until you earn your billions or your millions to do those kinds of things, to start a business. You don't need that. For most of the things that you want to do in your life, money is probably not the gating factor. When I, when I talk to people about their dreams and what it is that they want to do, when it really comes down to it, when you really take it apart and dissect it, very rarely is money the gating factor. And there's usually many other things and other ways to achieve that dream. And so you don't, you shouldn't wait for that kind of money to try and strive for your dreams. You have this great line, I don't have it in front of me, that the objective should be to become yourself the day before you right. die. So that's the, Do you want to restate that? Like yeah. the last or penultimate 
piece of advice in the book, and just the explicit one is your goal is to be able to say on the day before you die that you have fully become yourself. That is a very high goal, but maybe on the day before you die, you can arrive to make it. But for the rest of your life, you'll be working towards that asymptotically, like the approach to zero, where you are headed in that direction. And it's weirdly something that you can't do by yourself. You cannot become yourself by yourself. Yeah, right, you right, right, right. Your family and friends, colleagues, customers, clients. Yeah, yeah to help you become the best you, the best version of yourself, to fully become yourself, to be the only. Um, we need everyone around us. So um, don't try and do it by yourself. And, and, and you say part of this is becoming the most improbable person yeah. that you can be. You talk about leaning into your weirdness. The thing that made you weird as a kid will make you great as an adult, right? right? right so this, right. Is, this is not about being sort of perfect by any means. This no. is just about being differentiated right, right. And, and, and savoring and relishing and, and sharing with contagious enthusiasm the specific quality that is you. Yeah, it is exactly right. You've summed up perfectly. Rufus, I have to have to move on, and I want again to um, thank you for this incredible, tremendous conversation. I had a lot of fun; it was really a blast. You asked great questions, and that's that shows that you're really human because <laughs> right now answers are cheap and going to be done by the AIs, and the questions are going to be what humans do <laughs> so well. You're 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 an ace human. And I, um, I appreciate your attention to my book and my work and this opportunity to share it with your followers and friends and fans. Well, your, your, your book is a, is a gift. Thank you for it. Excellent advice for living from Kevin Kelly. Thank you, Kevin, for being with us today. It's been a delight. Kevin had to run, but I'm still here with a few extra nuggets of wisdom from Kevin Kelly. Don't measure your life with someone else's ruler. If your goal doesn't have a schedule, it's a dream. Don't aim to have others like you, aim to have them respect you. You can't reason someone out of a notion they didn't reason themselves into. Friends are better than money. Almost anything money can do, friends can do better. How to apologize, quickly, specifically, sincerely. You don't have to attend every argument you're invited to. I like that. Making art is not selfish. It's for the rest of us. If you don't do your thing, you're cheating us. And finally, a tip from Kevin that I'm still working on. Generally, say less than necessary. I'm only just scratching the surface here, folks. For hundreds more pieces of wisdom, pick up a copy of Excellent Advice for Living, Wisdom I Wish I'd Done Earlier by Kevin Kelly. Don't you love that title, Excellent Advice for Living? That's a good way to describe what you'll get if you download the Next Big Idea app. We have partnered with hundreds of the world's best authors, a new one every day, folks like Adam Grant and Gretchen Rubin, to create 12-minute audio summaries of the key insights from their new books. These authors spend years researching and writing, and then they summarize the key findings that can help you live smarter in just a few minutes. To tap into this incredible reservoir of wisdom, all you have to do is go to your app store and search for the next big idea. Are you enjoying this show? 
then you'll probably love our new spinoff. It's called The Next Big Idea Daily, and it's hosted by my friend, Michael Kavnat. Every day in just minutes, you'll get a masterclass in better, smarter living. Follow The Next Big Idea Daily wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode was produced by Caleb Bissinger, sound designed by Mike Toda. The team at the LinkedIn Podcast Network are our senior mavericks. I'm Rufus Griscom. See you next week.